Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have given us a chance to participate with you in ministry, to be in the world, and maybe in our little tiny corner of the world, what you are in the universe, a servant of all. Lord, I ask that you will uh, bless our hearts to understand what you would like us to do and how we can be enriched by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with reading a, a, a passage from Matthew, chapter 13. Jesus says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and so on. We're very familiar with this particular parable. And when he comes down to verse 8, other seed fell on good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. So the disciples came to him and asked for the explanation of that. And in explaining the parable, Jesus stated that the seed represented what? The Word of God. And he also stated that in the parable, the soil represented my mind, the heart, the mind. Obviously, it comes down to our thought processes. When you look at gardening, the profound, the most profound thing and yesterday I went through some of the blessings and benefits that you can get from a garden. And um, the last one on there was the spiritual understanding. Christ's Object Lessons, there's a very fascinating statement where Ellen White explains that parable and she says that the parable of the sower is not valued as it should be because she says the same laws that govern earthly seed sowing govern the sowing of the seeds of truth in our heart. In other words, if you want to understand how to have a real dynamic spiritual experience, what do you do? Look at the garden because it's exactly the same laws. The same principles, the same operations, and the same laws that govern how the seeds grow in your garden are directly transferable to your own spiritual life. And uh, this morning, I want to look at nutrition, and I think as, as Christians we understand the importance of nutrition, spiritual, spiritual nutrition and food. And um, I'd like to, just by way of review, just a few slides here. The focus on how you can build 
nutritious soil, or soil nutrition, for nutrient-dense food. In other words, how do you get the healthiest, best food that you can get and the best yield that you can get? And I know that some of this is going to be maybe a little bit technical. I hope not too much. But um, I want to keep all week long, keep in mind the essential principle that I think is so important here. I'm going to review it here. The Lord God took the human, settled him in the Garden of Eden for the purpose of farming it and taking care of it. The reason why we were put in the Garden of Eden was to take care of the farm, or take care of the garden. Now, it is also true that um, it goes the other way. So you see here, God planted a garden in Eden, in Eden. It needed to be farmed. There was a need, and so God created man for the purpose of meeting that need. And it's illustrated in this, in this circle that Desire of Ages, page 21, tells us is the, is the essence of God's law. Man contributes to the garden, and the garden contributes to man. We minister to the needs of the plant, and the plant ministers to the needs of us. That is the essence of God's law, and the essence of his character. And uh, I also, yesterday, the packed cup principle in the garden, Give, and it will be given unto you. The same measure, the same size container we use to give with is what is going to be given back to us. But God's principle is that whatever we give with, he, he gives it back, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So the more we want to invest in something, the more we invest in, in giving, we get it multiplied back to us. But this concept of ministry everything having a ministry and supplying the needs of something else is foundational to understanding how to most effectively uh, garden. I also reviewed, for anybody who wasn't here, that uh, there are six different benefits that you can get from gardening as an incentive. Um, a better performing brain, improved mental health, stress relief, and enhanced health, and uh, safe food and spiritual understanding. And I think that that last one, people who don't, who don't do things really practical like gardening have a hard time taking the abstract spiritual truths and putting them into concepts that people can clearly understand. And I think that's especially true in dealing with the youth because young people, children, have a hard time understanding abstract spiritual concepts. Their mind, that part of their mind is not developed. God didn't intend for it to be. He wants that spiritual truth to be understood by showing them hands-on, tactile, touch-and-feel things that they can understand, and the garden is a, is a fantastic place for that to happen. So, now to the soil. There are three different aspects, dimensions, components, you want to say, of soil. Now, when you look at dirt, what do you see? 
dirt, right? Just plain dirt. It's brown, maybe reddish like we have in the desert southwest. Um, it might be black, it might be gray. There's different, different colors, but it just is, looks like a blob. In that thing that looks so dirty, you have uh, the physical component, you have the chemical component, and you have a biological component. Now, like I said, uh, this might sound a little bit technical, but um, I want to begin by looking at the physical aspect of dirt. Now, I'm not talking about its temperature, its color. I'm going to look at, at um, how the physical part of soil affects plant growth and how it affects you as the gardener. <clears throat> the, the physical components are very, very important. And on our farm in Arizona, as well as, as Good News Farm here, there are a number of times that I have seen what appears to be nutritional deficiencies. And our nutritional deficiencies in the plant, but they exist not because the nutrient isn't there, but because the physical property of the soil is such that the plant is not capable of taking it up. So there's, a, there's some very important parts to that. And um, the physical component provides air spaces. Now, why, do, why are air spaces important? Well, you need oxygen, of course, for, um, for roots and for the microbes. But um, in addition to that, did you know, do you know how many creatures actually live in the soil? Going to, um, going to go over that in a minute. There are far more creatures under the surface of the soil than there are above the surface of the soil. Far more. There's more life happening below the grass than in what you can see. Kind of makes you think of this whole um, um, Ephesians 6 thing that, uh, where it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are unseen elements happening around us. There's a whole life that we can't see in the great controversy, and there's a whole life we can't see happening below the soil. But all those creatures need space to live. And they have to have an air pocket, essentially, to live in. I mean, they can't, they can't live inside of a rock. So you need, you need those air spaces. And the air spaces also provide for water drainage. Now, that's less important in Arizona, where I come from. But um, it's, it's um, certainly a very important factor. And, of course, most living organisms need oxygen to survive. And so the air spaces allow for roots and oxygen and simply real estate to live on. And um, 
water holding capacity, how often do you have to water your garden? Um, how much water is actually being held there? The air spaces provide for water holding capacity, of course. And uh, that water actually is where all of the chemical reactions happen. If you want to get fertilizer, nutrients into your plant, it has to happen in the presence of water. There's no other way that that can happen. Your plant doesn't go down there and pick up a, a little chunk of iron and pull it into the root and you know, work it up the plant. It all goes in as water. And so th the physical property determines, or the physical characteristics of the soil determine how much water is going to be there and how well those different things are happening. And uh, this is probably one that people don't think of too often, and I've alluded to it already, the surface area. The, you've got to have a lot of surface area for those, um, those different creatures to live on. Now, when you look at, at this particular slide, there are three different components how many do you see? Just seeing if you're awake. Yes. Yes. Okay. There's actually, th when you look at soil, they only consider three particular components. Clay, you see way over there at the far right, and silt and sand. Now gravel, of course, isn't considered part of soil. It, it can be in your garden, but it's not considered part of soil. Now, most people aren't aware of this, but the difference between that ugly clay soil that you might have in your garden and an absolutely beautiful fertile loam that your neighbor has that you wish you had, or that sandy soil that, that uh, dries out all the time, for all intents and purposes, the only difference between any kind of soil is the relative blend of particle sizes. That's all. Small particle sizes, the clay, have the characteristics they have almost exclusively because of how small they are. Sand has the properties that it has almost exclusively because of the size that it is. And so when you look at, when you look at these things, it certainly doesn't seem that way when you look at the dirt. But the reality is the difference between clay, between a nice loam, between sandy soil is just the size of the particles. Now, if you look underneath the clay there, you notice the size there. It says that clay, by definition, is less than 0 .002 millimeters. Now, that's about two microns, or two micrometers. And then you go up to the sand size, and it's from 0 0.05 millimeters to 2 millimeters. That means that sand is at least, at least 25 times larger than clay, and it can be even 1,000 times larger or more. Now, in, in a couple of slides, you'll see why that makes a difference. Now, when you look at this picture here, it looks like you know, you've got these nice little round dots that are the sand, the silt, the clay, or even the gravel. This is what, this is an actual scanning electron micrograph of soil. And you can see that those particle sizes 
don't look anything like the prior slide where they're nice round dots. Okay, they're all different shapes, they're jagged. This looks like something out of a science fiction scene. And uh, this is soil magnified 10,000 times. And uh, if you look at that little scale there, that line, that represents two microns. That is the size of a clay particle, or small, like that size is the biggest for clay particles. So if you look there, you can pick out some of these little tiny pieces and particles and see that they are definitely considerably smaller than that, and so they would qualify as clay. When you look at this here, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just want to show that this pyramid, which is a classic soil science pyramid, at the top, you see it says clay. Down in the very, very bottom left-hand corner, it says sand. and the very bottom right-hand corner, it says silt. Okay? I don't want to, like I said, spend too much time with this, but this shows the different types of soil based on how much of each of those three things there are. So if you look at, at the right-hand slope, it says uh, percent silt, the left-hand slope percent clay, and the bottom base of the triangle says percent sand. And if you go through those, those intercepts, you can see that if you want a nice loam soil, you're going to be about 80% silt and about, about uh, well, I can't see where that is there. But anyway, you can see that it's going to be about 20% clay, and the balance is going to be uh, 30% in the, uh, or so in the, in the sand or clay. So that's how you look at the different types of soil. And it doesn't really make much of a difference, except that I want to, to get to something with this that is really, I think, important. When, when you look at gardening, there are more than one way to change the soil that you have. If you understand that soil characteristics are driven almost entirely by the particle size, you can alter the characteristics of your soil, not just by, say, bemoaning the fact that you've got a bad soil. If you have a sandy soil, you can add a lot of organic matter because organic matter, when it breaks down, is colloidal, meaning it's just as small as clay is. But it has very different properties than, uh, uh, that can actually help benefit your soil. Now, one last thing on this, this whole thing to give us an understanding of soil. Over here, this is a, a two-dimensional picture or illustration, but it's actually, you're supposed to envision it as a cube, for example, on the left. If you take that same cube, you can see its relative surface area on the bottom is six. Now you slice that up into, into uh, thirds in all dimensions, and what happens? Your surface area goes up to 18, and you slice it up into ninths in all dimensions, and your surface area goes up 54. So in other words, you, the smaller the particle, and I think that that's probably not too hard for most of us to understand, the smaller the particle, the more surface area there is. Now why does that matter? hope this next slide 
helps show. This is a micrograph of some soil. See those little round white dots? Those are bacteria. Now notice the bacteria are actually taking up real estate. In, in, um, in the soil, very often the limiting factor for microbes is real estate. They don't, like to, uh, they don't like to share space any more than people do. If I decided I was going to come and live in your home, you would probably have a problem with that. And microbes do too. They do not like sharing their space with another microbe. So the more surface area there is, the more creatures can be living in your soil doing what they do. And hopefully in a few minutes you'll understand some of the benefits that come from that. Here's another one that shows, that shows the uh, piece of soil with little strings and those are, that's a fungus. And that's the mycelium or hyphae of the fungus spreading out and um, growing all over the surface under the soil. Now, this is a very interesting, very interesting thing relating to particle size again. This picture was taken, and you probably can't see it very well there. The top frame is at 93% relative humidity in the soil. The bottom frame, they raise the humidity to 96%. And look at the water covering that one particle of soil. And this is a clay soil. Look at how by just, they didn't pour water in, in on this. This was absorbing the water from the air, and it actually made a, a film of water. Now that film of water on the surface of a soil particle is where all the action takes place in the soil. That's where the roots they go to that little particle interface and the little tiny root here pulls that water off, the, off that, that uh, surface, that film on the surface of the particle. That's where it gets its water from and that's why your plant doesn't wilt even though when you pick up a handful of soil you couldn't squeeze any water out of it. Because the water that's on those little tiny pieces of dirt is a tiny thin film that you can see in this picture and that's where the chemical reactions are happening that's where the microbes are growing that's where where the roots are getting their water from now to review that you may not have gotten all of this but the physical properties depend on how easy your job of working the soil is if it is going to be hard to shovel and hard to work with, how many microbes can live in your garden, how much water will stay in the ground near the roots, or will drain away and take all your nutrients with it. The physical properties help determine whether you will get root diseases, how soon you can plant in the spring, how well your plants can handle drought, and how often you need to water or fertilize. And I hope that you can see in that, in that uh, brief overview 
that physical properties are very important. And um, there's a lot of this is building to the way that I think that you can garden very simply in your backyard, and I believe in raised beds. So I'll just put that out there right now. Uh, good confession. And um, so in looking at the f- actual f- properties of the soil, when you build a raised bed, you can decide what you want to put in that raised bed. You can make your own soil if you choose. And I think there's significant advantages in doing that. And so understanding this helps you, uh, I believe, make a, a garden that's easier to work with and can be more productive because you can choose. You can't go in there and take your, your, your large garden in your backyard and decide to bring in truckloads of sand if it's a clay soil or some of these kinds of things very easily. But if you can take a small space and change that to be the way that you want it to be, and then get a lot of food out of that small space, then you can have something to work with. Um, The second part of of a soil, of course, is the chemical part, and I I won't spend too much time on this. We often think of this right here. Anybody who's ever been a farmer knows NPK. N stands for nitrogen, P stands for phosphorus, and K stands for catrium. If anybody said potassium, they're wrong. Okay, it stands for catrium. Now, catrium is potassium. It just happens to be a Latin term for it. But that's what the K stands for. So you have NPK, and that's what we usually think of when we think of fertilizer. But these are the, these are the other nutrients. Calcium and magnesium are used in large quantities. And then you have iron and boron, copper, molybdenum, zinc, manganese, and sulfur used in smaller, they're called trace minerals. That's what we normally think of when we think of nutrients in the soil and fertilizer in the soil. But I would like to suggest that soil and plants aren't a whole lot different than humans. And if you want to try to break down human nutrition and say you need these minerals and fats and essential amino acids and certain vitamins, is that going to give you a healthy diet? Not really. We have learned that there's a whole lot more to human nutrition than simply these minerals and essential amino acids and vitamins, etc. We understand that there's antioxidants and, and uh, other phytochemicals in there and a whole lot of things that are really profoundly important for human health. And I think the same thing is true in the soil. And this here is an actual um, 3D computer model of a molecule called humic acid. Humic acid, interestingly enough, is the, when you take a potato and you throw it in your garden, or you take a wood chip and you put it in your garden, where does it go? It turns into dirt, right? But it doesn't turn into the same kind of dirt that the rest of your soil was, right? It's a black, earthy, rich, organic substance that it breaks down into. As that breaks down, it goes through different decomposition steps, all being carried out by these different microbes in the soil, and it ends up 
after a long, long time, we're talking years, it ends up as this funny-looking thing right here. Humic acid is one of the few chemical molecules they actually do not know even what its chemical structure is. That is how complex it is. We do know that it is one of the most powerful organic molecules out there. It is, it is amazing in what it does, and I think it's, it has a lot of spiritual, spiritual points there, but humic acid holds onto nutrients in the soil, as does clay. It has what is called a cation exchange capacity, CEC. Now, that's a fancy technical term that simply means that it will hold on to most of the fertilizer that you put in the soil, at least some. But it will only hold on to the ones that have a positive electrical charge, which is your iron and manganese and potassium and calcium, but it will not hold on to nitrate nitrogen, it will not hold on to boron, and it will not hold on to molybdenum because those have a negative charge. And enter humic acid, organic material. It holds on to both negative and positive ones. Now that might not sound like a whole lot of understandable things, but I would like to say that organic material in the soil serves a very valuable role in holding on to nutrients so they don't just drain away with your water and make them available for the plants when the plant needs it. Now I'm going to put on here this last week's soil report that I got from my farm in Arizona. Um, and uh, I would like to have you look at that bottom little rectangle where it says carbon-nitrogen and the carbon-nitrogen ratio. I want you to notice on the left-hand side the number there, 36.8% carbon. This is, this is a bed, it's a raised bed in my greenhouse, that is made of entirely organic material. I didn't mix in there, you know, natural soil or anything like that. This has been using this for several years. It's very, very carbon-rich, and as the result of that, there's going to be a lot of humates in there, those molecules that I put there in the prior slide. Now notice, up above that, in the line where it shows all of the nutrients in the soil, notice the nitrate nitrogen over there. That's one that you're very familiar with, 410 parts per million. Normally in a soil you would look at 70 or 100. This is so high of nitrate nitrogen that the, um, the lab in their conversations with me, they say, your nitrogen is, is excessively high to the point of being toxic. But if you look at the plant tissue analysis, you won't see that because that nitrate is being held by the organic components in the soil, being buffered. Most importantly, if you are know anything about soil, you look at manganese, which is right in the middle of, the, uh, of those list of nutrients. They say it's very high, 
at 110 parts per million. Plants will die at 50. Okay? Plants will die at 50 and my manganese in the tissue is not even high. It's what they call adequate. So I'm showing that because, because it um, supports my hypothesis and my, I believe, fact that if you have an organic, a high organic fragment, a fraction, I should say, a lot of organic material in the soil, that it buffers those nutrients so there's a lot of it there to meet the needs of the plant and it's not being toxic and it's not being deficient. And I would also like to just put in a plug, the only nutrients that I'm putting in here are plants. Dead plants that I've put in there as, as nutrients. And um, you can see that you can get an awful lot of nutrition in the soil from veganic fertilizer. But that's a, a different point. Okay, the last component is the biological one, and um, this is where it starts getting interesting. Remember yesterday when I was talking about the, the, uh, the way in which you can get a mood improvement by working in the garden? Where did that come from? The bacteria, right? As you're exposing yourself to these microorganisms in the soil, it actually improves your brain function and it improves your mood and, and all these other things that, that improve the quality of your life. That's all new stuff that we didn't really even know about a few years ago. That we're discovering that we are part of an of a interesting ecosystem that involves, you know, like I said, your body is actually 10% human and 90% bacteria. Because, yes? Good question. The question was, do the bacteria that, that get into you, like we talked about yesterday, that have these impacts on you, do they come in through, through your breathing? Do they come in through the food you eat? Do they come in through skin contact? And the fact is it's all three. They've discovered that the, that the contact with the skin elicits a response, as well as the uh, being ingested through the food that you eat, and even in the dust, and then you swallow, all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of different ways in which the bacteria get into your, into your body. But when you, look at the, when you look at the garden, you see the same thing happen. There's something called the microbiome, and that's a fancy term for not too much. But um, the, the soil, as I said, has a lot of stuff in it. And uh, I'm only gonna cover, a, I'm only gonna cover a, a very few of the things. There are up to a billion bacteria in every teaspoon of fertile soil. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried counting. I used to, when I was too small to be intelligent, uh, I decided I was going to do this project. I wanted to see if I could count to, you know, what, what am I, six, seven years old? 
and I thought it would be really cool. 10,000 seemed like a, a really big number. And so every morning when I would wake up, I would spend a few minutes counting, and then the next morning I would take up where I left off before. So over the course of, of probably several weeks, I, I counted to 10,000, and I was quite pleased with myself. Now, a billion is a little bit larger number than 10,000. There are a billion bacteria in a teaspoon of rich soil. There are a million fungi, and those little strings, the hyphae, the mycelium, they, there can be up to 340 feet of fungal hyphae, or mycelium, those little strings, in a teaspoon of soil. You think about, you think about uh, what's actually going on there. There are up to 100 million actinomycetes in a teaspoon of soil. And we're only touching some of the things here. There are also nematodes. And when you think of nematodes, you probably think of the ones that do bad things, but they are a very, very small amount of nematodes. Most nematodes do, are really good. And um, the, um, there's a lot of mites and earthworms and countless other things, protozoa, amoeba, pill bugs, sow bugs, etc. Okay, each of those things have a, an interesting role to play in, in actually what's happening in the soil. Now, here's, a, here's some pictures if you're a kid at heart and like to see pictures. Um, here's, a, here's an actual electron micrograph. Of, uh, those are the canidial spores of a fungus. And um, there's some... I wish that, that you guys could see some of the, especially the color electron micrographs of some of these creatures. And you'll see a couple of them here, but if you see some of them, they're, they're amazing. Okay, here's some actinomycetes. Actinomycetes are actually a cross between bacteria and, and uh, fungus. In fact, for a long time, they used to think they were the missing link in the evolutionary chain between bacteria and fungus, and they've learned since then that isn't the case. But uh, here's, a, here's a macro picture of them. This is what they look like when they're actually growing uh, somewhere. And uh, now here's one of these creatures, or part of one of the creatures. wouldn't all fit on the screen. This is a purple snout mite. You ever seen a purple snout mite? Okay, there's a lot of these kind of things in the, in the soil. Here's a nematode, a rather plain, ugly thing. And here's a close-up of his mouth. And uh, this is a predatory mite. You can see where, where uh, some of these Hollywood people go for some of their inspiration for science fiction movies. Okay? Uh, God was much more original. Only I think that his things, even when they're ugly, they're cute. And uh, here's earthworm and pill bugs. Here's um, mycorrhizae. Now I'm going to just briefly mention mycorrhizae. Um, it's a type of fungi that connect roots from different plants. And it actually will transfer nitrogen from one plant to another. Okay, talk about cooperation. The biggest thing that mycorrhizae do is they actually, they actually will penetrate the root of your plant and form a beneficial relationship with that root where the, um, that they actually increase the root mass by a factor of probably 10 times or more. In other words, you take, you take um, 
the amount of roots that you've got and where those roots can go to pick up the different nutrients that they need and it's pretty limited. Now you take, remember in a teaspoon of soil you can have 340 feet of, of uh, fungal mycelium, mycorrhizae or some of those and they can just be going everywhere finding any available nutrient that the plant needs and transfer it to the plant in exchange for getting something from the plant that it needs which is, which is sugar and things like that for its own life. So basically they have a, a um, what they call a symbiotic relationship. The, the mycorrhizae also produce these green, these green globs that you see here. It's a protein called glomulin that actually cause soil pieces to stick together into lumps. Now remember when I talked about the physical properties? When you start getting into, into um, an organic rich type of soil, it will actually start making those tiny pieces of soil that have a lot of surface area that the microbes need and it kind of helps stick them together into bigger groups so that they actually have the physical properties that sand would have so that you get this, that's why you can get this, um, if you dig into soil that has a lot of organic material in there, it has a very friable consistency, that's where it comes from. And um, so these, these microbes do these different things and make the fertilizer available. Now one of the things that blew me away, did you know that in an organic rich soil, and if there's anybody here who's scientifically oriented, you might think I'm just being crazy. Microbes can actually create water for the plants. Did you know that? And you say, you can't make water, right? It's, it's elements. When you, when you take organic material and metabolize it, what does it turn into? Water and carbon dioxide. That water is captured in the soil and is made available to plants. So the more organic matter you put in the soil, as that breaks down, that actually turns into water that's available for your plant, which is one of the reasons, only one, but it's one of the reasons why organic soils, plants grown in organic soils, are more drought resistant than, than uh, uh, soils grown in conventional uh, mineral soils. Now, I'm going to put a slide here. This is a quote from the USDA National Resource Conservation Center. If you read that, they believe, this is all new, some of this stuff is just, just very, very new scientific developments. They think it's possible to control what plants will grow in an area by the microbes that are living in the soil. Now, what difference does that make? What do you want to grow in your garden? Tomatoes, cucumbers, kale, of course. How many of you guys tried that um, kale smoothie? A few. Okay, I think she's going to have more stuff today. Yeah, there's going to be more stuff today. Come by the farm store and she'll have more stuff for you to try. Okay? So now that you know that kale is a really good thing, you want to grow kale in your garden, and it tastes good. 
But you don't want weeds to grow in your garden, right? If you notice here, this is, this is all new stuff. We don't know where, what we can do with it, but what they're discovering is that you have a healthy microbial population in your soil and it will actually suppress the weeds. Now all of us are saying we want to see that, right? Okay. We're not going to have a weed-free garden, but we can certainly have a weed-suppressed garden by having a healthy population of microbes. And one of the reasons that that happens is that they've discovered that plants really can't grow without those microbes on the bottom side, down in the dirt. They produce things, they produce materials that the plant needs in order to live and in order to thrive. So the way that works is that if you take the root of a plant, it actually has holes in it for all intents and purposes. And this was very surprising to me when I learned this several years ago. All the sunlight that goes into the leaf and it makes all the sugars and then those sugars go to make more leaves and more stems and, and tomatoes and cucumbers and all the other fruit that we want. That's called photosynthesis, right? That photosynthesis, I like to think of that as all going to make the plant. The reality is 60% of that photosynthesis goes down to the roots and much of it drains out into the soil. Now remember when I talked about the full circle gardening where you have this principle that everything is ministering to everything else, but what they give, they get back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. The fact is that the plants are willing to give all of these what they call root exudates, which are sugars and proteins and acids into the soil around them for the benefit of the microbes that cannot exist without them in exchange for the microbes give to the plants things that are going to enhance the plant. So that whole, you see that whole circle here, when you have a nutrient-rich soil, you have a, a terrific population of microbes in the soil. Those microbes are actually taking some of these things that the plant needs and they're pre-assembling them for the plant, the plant takes it into the root and it saves the plant energy to actually put it together itself. So you get, you get a plant being able to grow faster, yield more, and have better flavor fruit as a result of what the microbes are doing down underneath. Now, there's another thing. We're all familiar with antibiotics, right? Antibiotics, when they are when they are released into our environment the way they are today are bad for us. But antibiotics in and of themselves are not that bad. Did you know that the plants, we went over that yesterday, the plants take up antibiotics, right? God designed that because the microbes down in the soil are producing those antibiotics, those microbes which are largely the actinomycetes, they're producing those antibiotics in order to fend off harmful pathogenic bacteria that are going to hurt 
that particular species of microbe. The plant picks up that antibiotic that has been released into the soil, what's called the rhizome, the soil surrounding the root. The plant picks some of that antibiotic up, puts it into the plant, and I eat it, and what happens to me and my pathogens that I'm exposed to? It actually helps me resist disease as well. So in a natural environment, the way that God designed it, we have this rich ecosystem where everything is ministering to the needs of everything else, and in so doing, there are, there are benefits that come to my health to resisting disease as a result of that and also to resisting the plant disease because many of the diseases that the plant experiences are bacterial and fungal diseases that can be, that can be warded off by, by these different compounds, including antibiotics, but not limited to that, that are being produced by the microbes under the soil. Does that make sense? So what we have is, is those guys down there are factories producing stuff that the plant can use to protect itself from disease, to make it more productive and produce better flavor food, and food that contains compounds that will help me resist those bacteria and fungal diseases as well. Because almost all the diseases that I'm exposed to at some point in time have come in contact with the soil. And therefore, there are, there are mechanisms that, uh, that are developed for that. So, just a um, review on that. All these microorganisms that we have and macroorganisms change the physical properties. They make the soil richer and more nutritious. They store nutrients for when the plant needs it. They increase available water when it's in short supply and, of course, help it to drain away when it's in surplus. They protect the plant from diseases, improve the flavor of the fruit, and increase yield. So how do you make all that happen? And that's the... That's the um, the most important part, right? Okay? Never have enough time to go over everything. All right? You've got to feed the soil. Everybody focuses on feeding the plant. My plant needs some nitrogen. My plant needs some phosphorus. My plant needs whatever, right? Don't worry about what your plant needs. You feed the soil, and the soil will feed the plant. Now, if anybody's been around organic gardening, you've probably heard that concept before. But I want to, um, I want to focus here on uh, carbon. Carbon is the, in my opinion, one of the most undervalued nutrients out there. When I gave you the list of all the chemicals that people think that plants need, you know, the NPK and the calcium magnesium, all that kind of thing, the plant needs those things, but it gets it from the soil. And, and those things, if they, are, if they are in a natural cycle that's happening, as God designed the earth after sin came in, plants die and decay, the leaves and the plants break down, and all of those nutrients are recycled by the microorganisms, and including all the nutrients that are brought in by those very deep roots. Some of those tree roots go down... 20, 30 feet or more, and they bring up 
all these minerals, and so you're actually enriching the soil, not just recycling it. Now, this is the problem that I have with, with manure. When you look at the way that the way that the earth has been, especially when man isn't particularly meddling with things, when you look at, at it, how much manure does the typical acre of soil get exposed to? Very, very little. Unless you start confining animals in one spot, the animals are going to roam around and they're going to put a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit somewhere else, but they're not going to actually be putting very much. And I think that's very interesting because God knew that manure has, it's a concentrated thing, it's like a refined food. How much sugar should you eat? Or maybe I should ask how many Doritos should you eat, okay? Maybe a few isn't going to hurt anything, but if you sit in front of the television and you got the bag of Doritos and that becomes your, your daily practice, it's going to start showing up in your health. And the same thing is true with, with manure. The fact is, is that all nutrients ultimately come from plants. And those plants are eaten by an animal, and what does the animal do? The reason the animal eats the, the plant to begin with is because it needs the energy which comes from the carbon. So you take, and the plant extracts 80% or something like that, maybe 90%, anyway, it extracts a very large percentage of that available carbon, that active carbon. It extracts it and uses it in its own metabolism, and it leaves behind the stuff it doesn't need. And each animal's different. But typically, it leaves behind a lot of phosphorus, which has a bad habit of tying up calcium, which is probably the central, most important nutrient in the, in the whole plant-soil interaction. So, all this stuff, if you put it on your garden, it tends to be, and it would be interesting if I had the time to go into, into some of the very, very sobering information about the pollution that is coming to the environment as the result of the large-scale use of manures. In fact, in the state of Michigan, you're not allowed to take off a cover crop if you put manure on it, if you're a commercial farmer. I just learned that. Because they do not want phosphorus building up in the soil and polluting the groundwater. So, so what you have is the possibility of, with manures, of having these pollution issues and unbalanced soil because you aren't getting so much carbon, you're getting a lot of the concentrated, the concentrated nutrient. I'm going to... I'm going to, uh, I've, I think there's a lot of different ways in which you can get plant material into, and carbon material into the soil. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to just mention a little bit more on that. But um, you have, if you want to add particular nutrients, you can always use alfalfa pellets if you want to be providing some concentrated fertilizer. We use a a pellet that we make that is a blend of alfalfa and um, tomato vine, 
remains from greenhouses and peanuts and things like that. And, yeah, and, and sometimes um, my wife likes to remind me of the fact there's pinto beans and stuff like that in it as well. Those kind of, those kind of plant-based materials have a lot of have a lot of what would be considered um, a raw carbon, okay? Anything that when you put it in the compost pile is going to heat up or decompose very vigorously, that thing that's happening there, if it was happening in the soil, would be feeding all those microbes there instead of in your compost pile. And uh, even your table scraps. I like to see people bury their table scraps in the soil rather than in a compost pile because all the microbial activity that's happening over there is not feeding the microbes in the soil. And uh, now sometimes, sometimes it's, it's valuable to have something that is not so biologically active. If you want a quick boost of, of particularly nitrogen oftentimes in your soil, in your garden, um, this particular material that we use has gone through the composting process. And so it is biologically stabilized. So when you put it in there, it doesn't heat up. It doesn't really do a whole lot of smelling and any of that kind of stuff when it breaks down. And the result is that it gives a much faster boost of, of, um, of nutrients. Now, there's, there's an awful lot that uh, could be said about those kinds of things. But I'm going to, at this point draw your attention to that microphone right there. And if anybody has questions, then I can address specific questions rather than just trying to talk about generalities that might be of particular interest to you or might not. So if anybody has any kind of question, feel free to come up and, uh, and use that microphone so that it can get on the recording. Okay, so, um, so while people are getting... Is your, is your mic? Just stand in front of this mic. So while, pe while people are getting the current, is this, is this on? No. Oh, now it's on. Okay, so while you're getting the courage to come up, and I see we've got one brave person already, I just want to say, sweetheart, I know you explained it so scientifically, but... Um, that doesn't sound good. When she says that I explained it scientifically, that meant <laughs> I went... <laughs> well, I, I'm not very bright, and so for people who it might, if there's anybody else who isn't quite at... Anyways, who's more like me, I think one thing he really wanted to make clear was that if you put whole plants into your garden, like your whole banana peel or your whole um, grass clippings and all those things, if you put them into your garden, it's actually going to be better for your garden than if you compost it first and put it in. Because if you compost it first, then all those little creatures that he was showing you, the purple snout and all those little creatures, they won't have anything to do once you put the compost on your garden. But if you put the whole apple core and the whole banana peel and your, and your whole grass clippings, then you're going to give all those cute little creatures some nice work to do, which they have fun doing and makes the soil so good. Oh. But, but just make sure you do bury it. Yeah. Like if you put it on the top, it's just going to uh, get nasty. But putting grass clippings on the top is such a great mulch, and, and it does still break down. And, and it's surprising, See? too, how the earthworms, actually, we, we were just looking at some beds in the greenhouse. We had taken some of our compost from our house here and thrown it underneath the plastic. And the banana peels and stuff were already getting e eaten by the earthworms, and that's not 
normally like what you would see in a garden earthworms just go through the dirt but they were actually in among it and eating it apart okay all right amy touched on one thing this mic's not very live uh my mother eats an orange and a banana every day for breakfast without fail and i've got a recycle thing right by my back patio so she can go out there and throw the peelings in here. I got two years, years worth of peelings that haven't begun to turn into dirt yet. Yes. And the second thing is, I can till them into my garden with my rototiller, but the second thing is, how valuable are worms? I got a friend whose wife gets embarrassed because every time it rains, he goes out and scoops the worms up from all the neighbor's driveways and throws them in his garden. Can you elaborate on the benefit or, or non-benefit of worms? Okay, good questions. The first one is, is uh, the breakdown of, of these kitchen scraps, particularly um, plant-based kitchen scraps. Um, I'm not so enthusiastic about animal-based scraps, but um, the, what I like to do, even though I'll be honest and say that because of the size of operation that I have, um, we do it a little differently, but um, at a garden level, it's very easy to take and make a trench in your, in your garden or even to have a raised bed where you put dirt in part of the raised bed and you put some your, your kitchen scraps out there and just throw a few, just keep your shovel right there and throw a few piles of, a few, few shovelfuls of dirt over those scraps. And as that bed fills up over the course of the next several months, um, by the time you get done filling it, the first stuff is already going to be pretty well broken down and it's going to be covered by dirt. So there's different ways you can trench it and just throw a few shovelfuls of dirt over the stuff as you empty it. But that stuff, as it breaks down in the garden like that, will definitely break down and will definitely release a lot of pretty amazing stuff. And uh, as far as the earthworms are concerned, when I was um, at uh, California State Polytechnic University, I did a special project on earthworms and I really got uh, fascinated and attracted to them. Earthworms are one of the most amazing things because they take, as that dirt passes through the gut of the worm, they have all that slimy stuff, they're called polysaccharides. Those, they coat that and make all those nice uh, big chunky particles that have a lot of surface area, but at the same time they have the physical properties that are improved. They make nutrients available up to three or four times more available after they pass through the worm than before. And also, I believe, although I have not seen any studies to confirm this, but I believe that uh, the bacteria that are in the gut of the earthworm actually doing the work deactivate pathogens. So I believe that earthworms also reduce the disease load, the pathogen load, in the greenhouse, in the greenhouse, in your garden. So I believe that worms do a lot of good. Um, worms like to travel, so if you want to go and collect them from the neighbors, they'll probably go back there the next day or two. But um, uh, they might leave a f behind some eggs in the meantime. But unless you unless you create a really good environment for them, and then they definitely want to stay there. And if you come by the farm, you'll see how many earthworms have just like come into be using that whole matter, just brings them in. Um, in the yep. droves from around, just from outside. Like we put a little handful in each bed and now we have 
like millions of earthworms. She ever. thinks that she thinks that they have to be doing bad because there's so many of them. It's starting to get to like the gross point for me. No, no, no. <laughs> the, you can't get gross from earthworms. Okay, next question, please. Um, I have a question concerning a uh, comparison between the manure and uh, vegan fertilizer. And which? Manure and the vegan fertilizer. Yes. Um, is there a difference in the parasites? Because I know, like you said, you took a carrot and just wiped it and then ate it. Yes. Is there a lower parasite content? Or? You know, that's a very good, very good question. The question is, do you have a lower parasite um, risk, or to use a scientific term, loading, uh, in, in dirt that has been fertilized with only plant-based or vegan-type fertilizers as opposed to manures, etc. I did not mention yesterday, simply because you, know, you can only cover so much stuff, these soil-borne pathogens, I mean, sorry, food pathogens, E. coli, salmonella, wisteria, etc. They are by and large, on a practical basis, they are by and large fecal pathogens. In other words, they come from the feces. Now, yes, it is true that E. coli is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But the fact is the particular one, the H70157 or whatever it is, the, the bad guy is a fecal pathogen and it comes from those sources. So the reality is, is that you are much less likely, in my opinion, much less likely to be exposed to these type of food pathogens and parasites if you keep the manures out of your garden. Now, having said that, I want to clarify that I am not opposed to the use of manures when circumstances are certainly favorable to it. You know, you don't have, you know the source of the manure, you know that they didn't feed antibiotics and uh, hormones and stuff like that to the animals, etc. But, you know, so if a person wants to do that, they're free to do that, but I think that there are other benefits and risks as in, as in parasites. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. One is, is there a danger in using table scraps that are non-organic or from other countries or exposed to other things in your own garden? Good question. Uh, the question again is, is, um, is there a danger, and I'm assuming that you're worried about what might be on those table scraps. The fact is, is that the amount of residue that would be on a table scrap as far as the soil is concerned, is going to be minuscule. So, so, you know, if you eat that, your body might have a response to a few parts per million or even a few parts per billion of certain compounds, but when it goes into the soil, it probably has a very, very small impact. So I would say the reality is that it's going to be good to get it into your soil, and uh, over time, those microbes in the soil will detoxify whatever you put on as a general rule. Okay. Yes. Oh, I just thought your wife was well, going to I was something. just going to add. I, I think it's that same theory of, like, would it be better if we ate only organic food? Yes, it would be. But sometimes you can't eat only organic food, so then the next best thing is to make sure you are eating a diet rich in natural, in their natural state, fruits and vegetables. And that's so much better than, than eating a meat-based diet. 
And so I think the same thing in that regard is that would it be best if you used only organic table scraps? Probably yes, but still the non-organic ones are at least going to be better than, than using manure or, or some chemical type of fertilizer. Okay. And I realized from feedback I got yesterday that I may have left people with a, with a misconception yesterday. Um, yes, antibiotics and things like that can be present in organic food. And, uh, and consequently, those things are not ideal. But I don't want to leave the impression that we need to be hyper-paranoid particularly, obviously, organic food is going to have fewer issues than conventional, and conventional fruits and vegetables are going to have fewer issues than processed food, etc. So the fact is, is that your budget may not be able to allow you the privilege of eating all organic, even though that would be very nice. But um, uh, if, you, if you can eat as much fruits and vegetables from your own garden, that's the best. Then eat as much fruits and vegetables as you can from any source, but try to, try to I say, use American-grown stuff because we have much better controls and more knowledge about what's going on to most farms' produce here than we do in other countries. And, and then, of course, even from purchase stuff, organic is, is superior. But... Um, did you have another okay. question? Yes. Um, if we are making a raised bed garden in our backyard and we're making our own soil, do we need to add something to help these creatures, or are they automatically occurring in the sand or whatever we put into it? They, there, are, there are probably some benefits in different uh, inoculants, but they're going to be so prevalent that they're going to build up in a very short period of time. Okay. Thank you. I was just curious if you had any experience with using wood chips for uh, enriching the soil and mulch. I've been hearing a lot of things about it, and I've done a little bit of research, and I'm just curious on yes. what you think. Interesting question. Uh, wood chips as a mulch and, uh, and nutritive amendment. Uh, probably that's been very popularized through the, I think, the Eden, Eden Garden or something like that. I can't remember the, the term now. Um, the fact is, is that when you look at the carbon-nitrogen ratio of wood chips, it's about 300 to 1. They are, going to, they are going to need copious quantities of nitrogen in order to be broken down. If you put them in the soil, they are going to, they are, you've given the microbes a tremendous amount of food, and they are going to just wait for any available nitrogen they can get, and they will rob the plants of it. And so use it carefully. It makes a great mulch, particularly for aisleways, but be very careful about using it on top of the soil. I had a good friend that uh, put a large garden in in Arizona and had watched the video about that uh, Eden method. And um, contrary to what had appeared on the video, uh, he found that he had a very sick garden because even just not mixing it into the soil, just putting it on the top, started robbing nutrients from the soil. So, uh, and, and the problem is that wood chips actually do not have a lot of minerals in them either. They are largely cellulose, which is carbon, 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 and there's not a lot of other nutrients. Grass clippings, I believe, are a lot better. They will add nutrients to your soil and, um, and protect from weeds as well. Next question. Well, my question is similar. What do you think about the mulching with straw? 
And then in the fall, we usually work it into the soil, but keeps the weeds down, keeps yes. the moisture in. Okay. Straw is a mulch for weed control and uh, nutritive benefits. It's, it's actually a good thing. Uh, again, straw tends to be very low in nitrogen, has a very high carbon-nitrogen ratio, and it um, is not rich in other materials. But as long as you supplement with nitrogen-rich sources when you till it into the soil, it, it can work fine. We used hay. Only watch out. The, the nice thing about using grass clippings or anything that you can grow and mow yourself, you can make sure that you mow it before anything goes to seed. Because when you buy straw or, or um, hay or anything like that to use as a mulch, you bring in the neighbor's weeds too. Yes, yes, I found that out. Thank you. Next question, and then I think this will be the last one. I was wondering if there was a good way to increase humic acid in the soil. You were mentioning how beneficial that was. Is there a way to do that? Increasing humic acid in the soil. You can, you can buy humic acid as a supplement. And uh, I'm not a particularly fond uh, adherent to that concept. But if you are not going to be putting on organic material, that is certainly something you can do. Uh, I believe if you put on a lot of organic material in your soil, you will get these humates, which turn into humic acid, uh, fairly uh, abundantly within a relatively short period of time. And, and so those are your two options. You can supplement, but if you add a lot of organic material, you'll get there. Thank you for um, those questions. Okay, I got interrupted. Um, just really quickly, so this afternoon, the, the little good news store down at the corner, the little yellow store, kitty corner from the post office, um, for those of you that don't have your raised bed garden here with you at camp meeting, you can come there and get your lettuce and your kale and your carrots and your tomatoes and your green beans and your eggplants and your onions, and I could go on. And then also, if you were interested in some of the veganic fertilizer that the Good News Farm is selling, we have it down at the store as well. And then we, we, we will have more um, of the kale smoothies, a new flavor today, and that you can taste, and um, stuff like that. And we'd, we'd like to see you there. And I also just wanted to say, any of you that took the recipe card for the kale grapefruit salad yesterday that you tasted, um, it, when it got copied and pasted, there were a couple ingredients missing, so just ask me afterwards what they are, or if you come to the store, you can pick up a proper copy. Oh, okay. and there's farm tours this afternoon at 1 o'clock and at 5 o'clock, and the store is open from 1 till 4. All right, and um, tomorrow I'm going to be um, showing you some how-tos of building a raised bed with a protected low tunnel cover for it, and uh, we'll see you then. Let's Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the amazing way in which you have built the earth that we live in and the way that you've made things minister to the needs of each other creature. Lord, I ask that we can understand it better so that we can experience the health and quality of life that you desire us to have. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.